You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Go. A few guys and I were talking about uh, an event in June and realized that June is only two weeks away. As, as wild, more shocking for me, honestly, was that uh, 2023 is halfway gone, all right? Uh, so, so for me, right, and, and the reason I think that is is because we are just busy. We are just busy. If, if you ask me, Lawrence, how you doing, brother? The first thing out of my mouth before I even think about it is, man, I'm busy. Right? And that is probably like our natural response is I am busy. Students, you've been busy all year with classes, exams, homework, quizzes, maybe some of which you didn't think were necessary, right? But nonetheless, you've been busy. If you're a student and you manage a part-time or full-time job with a couple side hustles to add to it, you are busy. If you're married, married brothers and sisters in the room, right? If you do not circle, right, a date on the calendar, guess what? Date night ain't happening, right? Because we're busy. And if you're a parent or a guardian and you have all of those things as well, your middle name is spelled B-U-S-Y, busy. So from work, drop-off, pickups, changing diapers, your own homework, trying to understand your kids' homework, right? Life is so busy that one day the kids will start asking you for a driver's permit. That's going to happen, right? And wherever you are on that spectrum, it's undeniable that we are living in such an extremely fast-paced culture. Some of us may not even believe it until you cross the pond or you go to the Caribbean and you realize how fast and how busy we are. And to be clear, being busy isn't wrong. It's biblical to be productive and to work hard. God, for instance, created the heavens and the earth, right? He he worked. He put Adam in the the garden and gave him work. Jesus worked as a carpenter. His entire ministry was productive. He was busy. When he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, he said this to the Jews in Mark uh, 5.17, My father is working until now, and I am working. Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, said this in Proverbs, In all toil there is profit, but only mere talk leads to poverty. So if you're taking notes, I'm not saying you should put in your two weeks. Don't do that, right? God has put us in our, in our lives. God has put us in our jobs. God has given us skills to be productive with. However, we need to have some margin in our productivity and our busy life so that we don't miss the gospel at work in the lives of the people that God has placed in them. The Apostle Paul, if you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, He not only models this margin for us, but he also does something here that I believe is crucial to our relationships. Uh, It glorifies God and brings us joy when we do it. Let's read together. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always Uh, For all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake? 
and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." So Paul here, what he's doing in this section is that he is celebrating the evidence of the gospel in the church. He is celebrating the evidence of the gospel in the church. Now, Paul was uh, uh, the, arguably the most productive and busy apostle in the early church. During his ministry, he had recorded three missionary journeys, taking him through Greece, Turkey, Syria, and modern-day Europe. Unlike today, there weren't any Ubers, right? There weren't any lifts. He just had his Chevrolet legs, right? That's all he did, right? He just walked everywhere, right? And he, if he needed to get on the boat, he got onto the boat, right? Him and his fellow companions, that's all they did. That's how they traveled. In the nine years, he traveled more than 10,000 miles and planted at least 14 churches. 10,000 miles, that's a lot of leg miles, not sky miles, Right? 28% of his letters to the church, he, he, he wrote, uh, make up the New Testament. And not only was he a writer, but scripture states that he would often speak in the local synagogues, teaching the gospel whenever he had an opportunity. And this doesn't include all the sufferings, this doesn't include the stonings, being shipwrecked, right, being beaten and thrown into jail. He endured as a faithful follower of Jesus. So Paul was busy, right? His life was just busy. However, during all that he was enduring, he saw it fit and necessary to stop and to write to the churches. Some letters were of loving correction, like the book of Galatians. Others were patient explanations of the gospel, like the book of Romans. And as we read earlier of the Thessalonians, this letter specifically begins with a celebration of the evidence of the gospel in them with a primary encouragement of the second coming of Christ. That's the main purpose of 1 Thessalonians, but he begins here first with celebrating the evidence of the gospel. And to understand Paul's joy and what God is doing in them, we need to get some context of how this church began in Acts 17. So anybody remember Paul and Silas? Right? Paul and Silas in Acts 16, they uh, go to Philippi and minister in Philippi, and they were jailed and supernaturally freed uh, as they worshipped. And afterwards, they were joined by Timothy, and they traveled on to a city called Thessalonica. And this is modern-day uh, Thessaloniki in Greece. Now, this city was a, 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 an important Roman port city uh, right on the Aegean Sea, as you guys can see there. It was also a major hub of a, a road, a major road called the Ignatian Way. So not only was it a city, uh, I'm sorry, a seaport, but it was also a major stopping point for a major road. So it was a melting pot, a melting pot of trade, a melting pot of culture and religion, kind of like, like Miami, right? Anybody been to Miami? Right, you've seen like all the roads go down there, right? Ships come in and out. We have multiple pockets of cultures blending right into one place, kind of like Miami. 
And this was, as, as was his custom, Paul entered the local synagogue, and for three weeks he explained the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah to both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. And in that short span, in just three weeks, a church was planted. The gospel was like water on dry dirt. If, if you guys are, are some green thumbs, you know what that looks like when you pour some water on some dirt and it just soaks it up. There was a significant reception and faith in Christ. Acts 17, 4 tells us that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So it wasn't a small deal. This was a major, major uh, success in Paul's ministry. But the jealousy of the unbelieving Jews, they formed a mob. They wanted to kill Paul and his companions. So for their safety, the church uh, sent them away in the night so that they would eventually arrive in the city of Corinth. And this city of Corinth is where he writes to the church. But before his writing, he sends Timothy to see, how is this church doing? And Timothy brings back a report that the church, even though they are enduring a lot of persecution, they are flourishing, they are growing, they are becoming examples of faithfulness and evidence of the gospel, not just in their city, but all throughout Greece. And thus, 1 Thessalonians is the very first, is the very first letter that Paul writes to all the churches. And there are three important reasons why I believe Paul begins the letter this way. He doesn't start by just talking about the purpose of, 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 of the second coming. He begins by celebrating them. And first, it is a form of worship. Celebrating the gospel in each other's lives, the importance of it is that it is a form of worship. And secondly, it builds unity. And thirdly, it encourages perseverance. Celebrating the gospel, the evidence of the gospel in each other's lives is a form of worship. It builds unity and it encourages perseverance. In Paul's celebration, if we look at that first point, that is a form of worship. Paul's celebration of the Thessalonians produced, it produced something in them. It produced a gratitude to God. In verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God. Somebody say thanks. thanks. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we give thanks to God, we are what? We are worshiping God, right? Whenever we are praying, we are worshiping God. Even if we're asking God for, to meet our needs or to, uh, uh, to be close, we are expressing our need for him and we are giving him worship. Their faithful work, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in Christ is the evidence that Paul, right, is celebrating. And these three great Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope are what we also are to look for in our brothers and sisters and also call to celebration. But observation precedes celebration. Observation precedes celebration. My joy in celebrating anything has a direct correlation to my observation and depth of treasuring a person or event. For me to truly celebrate something, I need to truly observe it. For instance, right, I will celebrate much more if my Miami Heat, my basketball team, right, my Miami Heat, right, if they win the basketball championship this year, I will celebrate, right, if, if I attend 
Every game, I watch every highlight, I read every stat, I watch every post-game conference. I will celebrate much more, right? Why? Because I was watching everything. I read everything. I was there. I was present. I knew how difficult it was to win. And similarly, Paul's planting the church in Thessalonica. He knew how challenging it was for them. The opposition that they faced and having to be run out of town just after three weeks of being with them. And yet, the church was full of life. Paul knew that it wasn't his work. It wasn't the words that he spoke. It wasn't the length of time that he spent. He knew that it wasn't him, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what brought him joy, that God was at work. And that evidence brought him joy. And the same is true in our lives. Observation precedes celebration. In our productivity, and our busyness, right, we can miss the forest for the trees. We can be so focused on getting things done, so focused on getting from point A to point B, that we miss the work that God is doing in the lives of our church family all around us. Because we don't stop, because we don't engage, because we don't observe. We won't remember any works produced by faith, any labors of love, any endurance inspired by hope, any turning from sin and turning to God if we don't open up our lives to one another. But when we have those relationships rooted in the love of Christ, we see that God has begun a good work in someone next to us and is still, and he's working in them. We observe God's work and it turns what? Into gratitude, it turns into worship. God, you are so good. You are so faithful. I'm, I'm seeing that in real time. I'm seeing the gospel at work and it produces glory in God. It produces adoration of who God is and what he's done and what he is doing. Paul continues in verses four through five. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not in word, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. A writer that I found uh, early this week said, uh, the core of celebration is God. The core of celebration is God. His goodness and faithfulness in who he is and in our lives, celebration is meant to give glory to him. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, our celebrations point to Christ and his saving work in our lives. But I'd venture to say that we don't need to wait. We don't need to wait for Christmas to come around, right? We don't need to wait for Easter to come around. We don't need to wait for any other holiday to come around. But if we slow down and we get to know the people in our lives, we get to observe God working in them, we can see the gospel in real time and glorify God. We have reason, active reason every day with the people next to us. So celebrating the evidence of the gospel, it, it, it calls us to worship. It is a form of worship. And secondly, it builds unity. It builds unity. Paul continues in verses 6 through 8. And he said, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul continues by noting that not only did the Thessalonians become imitators of the disciples and the Lord Jesus, but that they themselves have become uh, the object of imitation. They received the Lord in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And thus all the other churches were looking to them to say, how did you do that? How did you imitate God in such a really tough time? Now, imagine, for instance, that we are this new church. We're in Port St. Lucie. We're not in 2023 with all this, all this uh, t- technology that we have access to us. But let's say that we are the new church in Port St. Lucie, and Paul and the others have had to escape the city because of persecution. Guess who they target next, right? They target us because this is home, because God has placed us here. And yet amid intense persecution, we've been faithful to the Lord. We have been gathering together. We have been serving one another. We've been loving one another. Now, without the advent of social media and and, uh, technology, the only way that we would hear these things is letters. Imagine the joy of hearing this letter read from Paul who is in Corinth. And for reference's sake, imagine we are in Portia and Lucy and Corinth is in Tallahassee. That's, that's about the distance. But we hear from Paul all the way from Tallahassee that our faith, our faithfulness has become examples to our brothers in Fort Pierce, right? To our brothers in Orlando, to our brothers in West Palm Beach. And not only that, like he is up there hearing that everybody is reporting to him in Tallahassee that our faith is loud, that we're walking with the Lord, that we are being faithful to him. Now, this expressed encouragement, this encouragement expressed to the church was built from a personal observation of Paul being there and also hearing from Timothy's report. It closes this 360-mile gap. It drew both Paul and the church closer. It built a unity. This, uh, uh, there are two keys to unity in the church. I want, I want to kind of dive in here. Two keys to unity in the church prior to any celebration or observation is proximity and relational vulnerability. Two keys to unity in the church is proximity and relational vulnerability. He says this in, in the second chapter in verse 17. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, Not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Paul is saying here that they were vividly torn away from the church. They were forced to escape with their lives. But he notes something here that is tearing. Uh, The tearing away is one of physical but not in heart. If I'm to kind of rephrase that a little bit, uh, there was only a physical tearing, right, A physical proximity is gone, but the heart is still there. The love for the church is still there. That's why, right, they wanted to go see them face to face. And both are crucial to unity, but God has designed the physical proximity to precede heart intimacy. God has designed physical proximity to be the requirement for heart intimacy. If I can't be in the same room with you, if I've never been in the same room with you, it'll be difficult, very, very difficult for me 
to be intimate with you. And we often make the habit, we make the habit of diminishing the need to be in physical proximity with one another, right? We make the habit of making excuses to not gather on Sunday morning. Not y'all, right? Because y'all are here, (laughs) right? But we often do that, and not just on Sunday morning, but with brothers and sisters. We wonder why there isn't any connection with the church, or we feel like we're alone in a room full of 300 or 400 people. Hebrews says, let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit, the habit of some. This wasn't, isn't just a 2023 problem. This was a problem in the early church. But more for us today with the advent and overtaking of technology and social media. I'm not saying there aren't reasons to be away. If you're out of town, there is a physical ailment for sure. But the habit of virtual attendance simply out of convenience is a cheap substitute for God's design. It is. It does not compare. If you invite me over to a barbecue, right, and I love a barbecue, so don't tempt me. I will, I will, I will come out there, right? If you invite me over to a barbecue, right, and I say, yes, I'm going to be there, and you're waiting, you're waiting, the food is ready, and all of a sudden you get a text from me and say, hey, where's the Zoom link, <laughs> right? Where's the, uh, uh, I need you to just text me the link. I'm going to watch you online. We miss out on so much. I'm going to miss out on the food, right? But nonetheless, there is something about being in the presence of one another. It doesn't diminish, thank God for technology, but we need to set our priorities right. God has designed humans to be in the same room together. And science is just, science is just catching up to this. Last week, I read an article by the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Just last week, he said this, it is an epidemic. The physical consequence and loneliness and isolation is an epidemic. He said the physical consequences, uh, health consequences of poor or insufficient connection include a 29% risk, increased risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, a 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Additionally, lacking social connection increases risk of premature death by more than 60%. That is the U.S. Surgeon General. They're just catching up. That's just the physical, not including the mental, let alone the spiritual for us. My dad said a quote a couple weeks ago on this same topic. He said that when we gather and make an effort to do so, the Holy Spirit will do things in us and for us that we may not even be aware of. He will do things in us and for us that we may not even be aware of. And for me, I have a little tech brain, right? I'm like, okay, what does that really mean? And if you have a phone in your pocket, there's a lot of processes, a lot of software that makes a phone call happen that you don't even see, you're not even aware of. But the Holy Spirit, that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? When we gather together, when we strive to gather together, the Holy Spirit does something in us and for us, which includes knitting our hearts together. It's ultimately the unity of the church. If my heart is, it's, it's, is knit to my twin, Pastor Chuck, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? His heart is knit with someone else, and his heart is knit to someone else, right? 
And guess what? We are knit together. Why? Because we make the effort to gather with God's people. But it takes effort. It takes us being in proximity, in physical proximity with one another. So I say that to us, please, if it's not a priority, make it a priority to come to church on Sunday. It's not just a check off the list. There is a design that God has for us in it. Come to small groups. Amen? Come to small groups, right? This, this is a, a, a great church gathering, but God has also designed us to be with one another, to know one another. Come to small groups. Go to youth. Serve on a team. Proximity is the first key to unity so that we can celebrate the evidence of the gospel in each other. And the second key to unity is relational vulnerability. So the first key to unity is, uh, is, is proximity. The second one is relational vulnerability. Paul and his companions in their stay in Thessalonica did more than share the gospel for three weeks. They did that, but they did more than that. He said in verses 2a, two, uh, 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 he says, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, We loved you so much that we shared not only God's good news or the gospel, but our own lives too. We shared the good news and we shared ourselves. Relational vulnerability is a two-way street. If I only seek to know what's going on in your life and I'm not opening up with mine, I'm just being nosy. <laughs> right? I'm just being nosy. The lack of vulnerability paired with an over-inquisitive desire of your life, right? Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.13, uh, leads to gossiping. It leads to gossiping eventually, right? It can be done out of boredom, right? My time is best served by digging, in, you know, digging out information for others for my own entertainment. It can be done because of dissatis you know, dissatisfaction with one's life. I want to see how badly my life sucks compared to yours, right? That can be a reason, <laughs> right? These are hard. We're digging deep here. We're digging hard idols, right? It can be also even more sinister to desire to manipulate others. I want to know things about others for a later use. I'm going to put that in my back pocket, right? But it's all a form of idolatry. If you kind of caught the things that I was saying, me and I, it's all about me. And it has the propensity to destroy current and future unity. Solomon says in uh, Proverbs 16, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. So that's not, that's not relational vulnerability. But when I wisely, wisely share my life with you and likewise you share your life with me, we see more of God's work in and through our lives. We'll build a bond and that in some cases are deeper than natural family bonds. Not saying that those are bad, that those are, those are not adequate, but sometimes God stitches, right, people in our lives that are closer than our natural family. And I've been immensely privileged to shepherd the Avenue Young Adult Ministry for a little over two years. And prior to that, in that same ministry, I was a small group leader for about four and in that time, I've seen people come and go, relationships build and fade. But at this point, the ministry is almost unrecognizable from last year. We have new faces, a small, tight-knit community, and a vision of young Christians who love the Lord and want to own their faith. It's that simple. 
A few weeks ago, <laughs> a few weeks ago, we went on a retreat to Mount Dora in, in March, and about 13 of us, we wanted to be free from distractions, right, and the busyness to rest together in the presence of God. And God was exceedingly faithful, not only accomplishing that goal, but he knit a bond, right, that weekend with people because they had the opportunity to be vulnerable. They shared their lives with one another. And that bond, is, it goes on today. It goes on today. My wife, during a night of prayer that weekend, she said, just in, 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 in view of who people have been, who people are, and what God is doing in their lives, she said, there's absolutely nothing that we all have in common except the love of Jesus displayed in our lives. Nothing that we have in common. I wouldn't be in the same room with you if it wasn't for Jesus, right? But relational vulnerability builds unity. It is a key. And paired with proximity and observing God's work in one another, our joy in celebrating the evidence of the gospel in one another is more full. So far, we've seen that it's crucial to make the time to celebrate the evidence of the gospel in one another because it's a form of worship. It builds unity. And the third reason, uh, reason is that it encourages perseverance. It encourages perseverance. Paul wraps up this chapter and he says in verse 9, For they themselves, the faith of the Thessalonians, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Paul here is commending or celebrating the faith of the Thessalonians uh, and, uh, that caused two things. Their faith caused two things. It caused repentance. Their hearts turned from idols and turned to the living God. And secondly, they began to wait they were waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. This, in other, in other words, is perseverance. One of the metaphors of the Christian life is a marathon. The writer of Hebrews, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. No matter how long a race is, whether it's the Indy 500, right? Any NASCAR fans out there? Is it Indy? Is it Indy? Did I, did I say it right? Daytona 500? No? Wow. Okay, okay. No matter how long the race is, right, whether it's a 3K, 5K, you want to stop eventually, right? Including our Christian life, our race will come to an end. There is a finish line. And oh, what a glorious finish line that will be. Amen? What a glorious finish line. No matter how long, whether you started today, you started last week, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there is a finish line, and what a glorious day that is. Apostle John gives us a glimpse of that finish line. He says in Revelations 21, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the earth's earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither uh, uh, there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the finish line. What's interesting is that we don't experience uh, the finish line alone. 
We don't cross alone. As God has designed us to be in community with one another here on earth, the end includes also those who have professed faith in Christ. It's not just us and Jesus, me and Jesus. It's us. It is us in Jesus. We're all joining the host of heaven and our brothers and sisters in worshiping God. That day will come, amen? Because Christ keeps us. It's not us keeping ourselves. Christ, he is the person that he's holding on to us. He will bring us to the expected end. And yet, we are currently running. We are persevering to the end. When I was in the Army, and my fellow vets can attest to this, uh, we had a biannual um, you know, fitness test. Now, back in my day, I'd like that I can say that now because I'm so far removed from what the army is right now. But back in my day, right, um, we had a, a, you know, push-ups, a timed event of push-ups and sit-ups and a two-mile run as fast as you can. And, and, and although I ran well, I noticed that I ran much better and learned better running habits when I had a pacer, somebody to come alongside of me and help me run. Specifically, my captain, Captain Supan, this man loved the Lord. He was light as a feather, but he loved the Lord, and he poured into me, and he was right there next to me. Anytime I needed a pacer, I called him, and he was there. And while he would correct me, he kept track of time and splits, but he also celebrated when I shaved seconds. If there was a checkpoint that I hit, he said, good job, keep going. You did great there. And whenever he paced me, I, I, I went back to my records a few years ago and I saw that all my times were better because of him being there. He not only helped me to finish, but he helped me to finish well. He celebrated my progress. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if you know anything about riding a horse, right, or you maybe watched any old school uh, Westerners, right, a spur is a spiked uh, metal worn on the heel of the boots of the rider. And when used appropriately, it urges the horse forward when riding. So the imagery here is that we need to consider how we can, in other words, come alongside one another, much like my captain, and encourage perseverance. Encourage perseverance to finish well. Not just to finish, but to finish well the race that God has set before us. We do that by considering, right? Considering requires proximity. It requires observation, it requires vulnerability and unity. Spurring on while including correction is also celebrating. It's celebrating the evidence of the gospel, the progress that we see in one another and continue to cultivate that evidence of Christ's work in us until that day that is approaching when we will see Jesus face to face. As there's much to celebrate in our Mother's Day, in baptism today, I encourage all of us to put into practice the slowing down of our lives, our busyness, 
It doesn't mean that we're not working. It is that we make the time. We ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me to see my brothers and sisters. Help me to know what they're going through. Help me to see the progress that they're making, the evidence of the gospel in their lives. And when we do that, we'll see and we'll have all the more reasons to worship God throughout our day. We'll enjoy deeper relationships with the unity that it builds. And we'll encourage our church family to persevere. And if you're here and you have not believed the gospel, you have not put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus, uh, the word of God says that today is the day for salvation. There is a day coming. There is a day coming where we will have to give an account. For some of us, if you don't believe the gospel, that means the wrath of God is at your doorstep. But God's desire is for no one to perish but to have eternal life. So if that's you this morning, we want to celebrate you believing the gospel this morning. If you were going to say, I don't know what they're going to think, we will celebrate. Amen? We will celebrate that you have seen the error, the sin in your life, and we want to put your faith in Jesus. There is forgiveness for your sins and adoption into the family of God. And this invitation is from God to you right now. Not only will we celebrate, but Jesus says that all of heaven, the angels, there's joy in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. Right? We may celebrate here and here, right? The gospel's evidence in our lives. But imagine the joy of all of heaven declaring God's goodness and God's mercy when you turn and repent. And if that's you, I'm going to lead you and all of us in a confession of faith. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, that he rose again to make me a child of God by faith in Christ. I am a child of God. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us in this room, for those who have recently, today, right now, have put their faith in you. We ask, Lord, that you would make yourself known to them, Lord, that we will come alongside. We ask. And we pray for all of us in this room. We pray, Father God, that you would open up our eyes to get to know one another. To pursue the relationships that you've put before us. To celebrate the gospel's work, what you're doing in the lives of one another, Lord. Because you are working. You're always working. And if we've gotten too busy to see that, Lord, we repent. If our lives have become just a task manager, just things going left and right, 
We repent, Lord God, because you are worthy to be adored. Your work is worthy to be adored and for us to be grateful for. God, I pray that we would celebrate the gospel's evidence in our lives. Be intentional with one another, Lord. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.